You're listening to All About Girls of Color podcast, a space dedicated to creating environments that allow girls to thrive. We explore issues and solutions that focus on removing obstacles so the natural joy and genius of girls can bloom. Join us as we dive into conversations all about girls of color and the women they become. I'm Tanisa Cunright, the founder and executive director of Detour Empowers and the Fancy Teen Girls Leadership Academy. I'm Gabriela Delgado, an educator and principal consultant for Saving Our Starfish. And I'm Ginedra Sykes, an equity, diversity, and inclusion certified organizational development coach and consultant and a partner in Arboretta Group. Disclaimer. Our intention is to bring our whole selves to the conversations by bringing our professional and personal selves to each episode. Any views or opinions on the podcast are personal and belong solely to the creators and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the creators may or may not have been associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated. So welcome to another edition, another episode of the All About Girls of Color podcast. Today we have Miss Asia Jones joining us, one of my personal favorites. Um, Asia and I met a couple of years ago through one of my college interns that was um, working with Detour. And initially she was a speaker at our Teen Girls Expos. So every year I would see her and she would be amazing and the girls would love her and want me to bring her back for the next year. And so um, that was like, you know, the beginning of our relationship and that has now transitioned into her actually volunteering for the organization and being with um, us on a more regular basis, which we're grateful for. And so she is a dynamic force to be reckoned with, and I'm sure that you'll feel that way by the end of this session, <laughs> by the end of this podcast. So I'm going to kick it over to Asia. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I, I want to kind of start out kind of telling you a little about who I am. So, um, and this is how I open my dissertation. So I tell this story about this black girl who was born in a prison because her mother was incarcerated at the time and that she was raised by her grandparents um, who were pharmaceutical sales reps, not in a legal way. And so um, coming home in sixth grade every day after school, um, doing her homework and then her grandparents laying drugs on the table, cocaine in particular, laying it on a table for them to package it, to distribute. And cops coming in all the all the time in and throughout the house um, and learning how to trap, trap drugs um, and putting it in toilets. So, you know, if a police officer came, oh, I have to go to the bathroom because we knew how to do this cartel, right? And which led me to getting into a lot of different kinds of troubles in elementary school, middle school, being suspended from the time I was in sixth grade till about, well, I think suspensions really started back in, I can remember far as one back as kindergartner, but when I looked back through my transcripts through my school years when I was coming up to do my PhD, um, seeing I was suspended over 80 times, whether that was in school suspension or out of school suspension. And talking about in 1995, Tupac came out with this song called Dear Mama mm-hmm. and how that really resonated with me because Tupac and I's story kind of parallel in a lot of different ways. He's searching for this mom that honestly can't be there for, for him because of her addiction to to drugs, right? And so he's searching out for this 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 mom that can't be for be there for him 
and is really pushing for this relationship, but it's not that she doesn't want it. It's, she can't have it because she's addicted to something. And paralleling that with my mother, my own mother, right? And then but another part of my story is I am a product of rape. So my mother was um, sexually uh, harassed and raped. And so I'm a product of that. And so having to deal with all those components yeah. of being a black girl, right? And navigating systems of education and in about sixth grade is when my eyes kind of got opened to mentorship and what that looked like. Um, this little short Hispanic man came into the office because I had gotten kicked out of class for, I was probably talking crazy, you know, <laughs> sixth grade. So I'm, I'm sure I was talking crazy and somebody said reckless, something reckless. And I felt I had something to prove. And, you know, when you're going through a lot as a kid, yeah. it shows up in different ways. And so this attitude, this anger, you know, I felt like everything I had to do was use these hands of mine. You know, I've now learned how to use them in a different way and write it out, you know, and still get the same effect and create change. Right. And so long story short, um, this man named Dave Trujillo says, hey, um, have you ever thought about going to college? And I looked him in the face and said, oh, people like me, we don't we don't go to college. We go to jail or we work at like McDonald's. Like college is not an option for me because I had never seen anybody who done that. Right. And so he's like, well, do you want to go to this program called Upper Bound? And I was like, well, what is that? He's like, oh, it's for kids who are poor and we help them go to college. And I looked at him and I said, well, how old do you have to be? He says, well, eighth grade. And I was like, oh, well, that's two years from now. Like, I'm not, I can't, I can't do the program. He's like, well, what if I got you in on a special, um, a special condition where we could do some pre-work with you? And I was like, yeah, okay. I was like, but what you mean by poor? And he says, well, you know, if you get food stamps, that means you're low income. And I, I'm thinking to myself, I was like, this is absurd. Food stamps, that's money. Like, I'm not even thinking that <laughs> yeah. an equivalent food stamps yeah. to poorness, right? right. And right. so, uh, and I and, and to add more context to the story, I grew up in Utah. So there's a whole bunch oh, of wow. dynamics that even going that with that. Being black in Utah, being black and not Mormon, and being black and having grandmother who's a pharmaceutical sales rep. That was a key piece there that I'm glad you're adding to the yeah, story. Okay, yeah. thank you for that. Yeah, so like, that that's some more context of being growing up in everything around you is whiteness, right? So when I go to class, there was from, I can remember from first to sixth grade, I never, the four black kids that went to the school, they were my cousins. So I never mm -hmm. seen another black kid. So when I got to school with the black kids at middle school, the black kids didn't talk to me either. Cause they're like, you talk white. And I'm like, well, we all from Utah. <laughs> we all sound about the same, right? right so, right. you know, dealing with those push outs and then yeah. within my own community, because that happens, you know, mm -hmm. and then dealing with the push out, that's an automatic pushing out because I'm not I'm not part of the predominant culture. So yeah. going through all of that, getting an upper bound um, and upper bound had its struggles too. like Mr. Trujillo was great. But then Mr. Trujillo, you know, he did some things that were push out for me, you know, like he would always threaten me, if you act up, I'm gonna kick you out, you know? And, th mm. and that's not what black girls need to hear all the time or girls of color need to hear all the time. They need to hear like, yeah, you're in the wrong and I'm gonna hold you accountable, but I'm never gonna give up on you. And so it, it came resolute with me when I finally determined that I was going to college, that I would make sure that I connected to any black girl or girl of color. And my focus is on black girls because that's, that's what I feel mm. most connected to, right? Sure. And so what can I do to give back to, to black girls? And I heard a quote about five years ago at a conference and it stuck with, excuse me, about eight years ago at a conference and it stuck with me ever since. If I choose to be an infinite person, which I choose to be, then I'll teach people beyond me. 
And that's what came to my story is what I'm doing. Me being able to do this work in my dissertation work is how I'm going to be able to tell my story so that I can help educators and school systems and society kind of reflect and change curriculums, change policies and procedures when it comes to navigating critical incidents with black girls. And so that kind of leads me into my dissertation work. So I recently just defended my dissertation proposal. I'm waiting for IRB approval so that I can <laughs> get to yeah. this, this next step, right? <laughs> Thank you so much. And um, I got a lot of pushback about my dissertation, about it being research, right? Because um, it's qualitative. It's an, it's an autoethnography. It's yeah. about me. Yeah. And so people sometimes, especially, you know, the, the five white men that sat in a room and said, this is research, and it's been passed on down to generations and generations of researchers that this has to be research, right? And so when I started this, one of the three things that I, I feel have helped me and I, let me change that, not feel, that I know that helped me navigate systems of education while being pushed out was music, memos, and mentorship. So I have about 40 journals that I have from the time I was 12, about 12 years old, that I'll walk through my research. And I, I'm talking about, like, one day my grandma, the police are coming, and my mom has some crazy man coming here to pick her up. And I navigate those things. And then I'm going to find and research, you know, the theories that it connects to. So I'm using my work on black qualitative inquiry um, is the methodology that I'll use. And in that work, it's using remembering mm -hmm. and memos and journals and context like that to go walk you back through research while looking at um, uh critical mentoring by Dr. Tori Weiston-Sardan, who's up in uh, Pasadena, Claremont, California areas where she kind of lives and does her work. But she created this thing called critical mentoring where it takes the, uh, the tenets of um, critical race theory and mm -hmm. mentoring and combining those and creating programs for youth of color to be able to navigate the system. So with the, with the music, I will, each section of my dissertation in each chapter will have a song that will introduce it and then I'll interweave the theory um, throughout that and then I'll take the memos and reflect on those memos and the music and see like where the racism and the critical incidents mm. connect while then pulling apart and seeing how they were critical supports and so critical incidents plus critical supports equals M3 which is music mentorship and mentos mem memos excuse me and I'll be able to kind of connect about how music outlines the lyrics, right? That's what you write down. That's your memo. But then how your music turned over to the um, memo then becomes your mentor. And then combine it with the mentors in life who've helped me navigate systems of mm -hmm. education. So that's kind of my, that's kind of my, where I'm at with my research and, um, you know, we got to talk to these mentors to see if they match up to what I'm writing in the journal. <laughs> I'm hoping so I don't have to do change too much work. Yeah. You know, that's so cool, you know, because as you were sharing, I was thinking about a quote that I just recently read and I can't remember who said it. But it was the concept that the most intensely personal experiences are the most universal at the same time. You know, that paradox, you know, it's kind of like when I was in my early 20s and I read Joy Luck Club and I said, my mother's Chinese. Right. <laughs> so it was like not I didn't relate to any of the but that essence of that demanding mother was like universal, but in that culture's package. So, you know, my thinking is that your work is really going to resonate 
because it's so personal. Yeah, and these are your lived experiences, you yeah. know. Yeah, and who determines what knowledge is? Mm-hmm. Who determines mm-hmm. what knowledge is valid? Right. Right? So that's a whole, what is that, ethnography or something like that? Who determines what knowledge mm-hmm. is valid? Right? When, when they did um, push back or question, what, how did you find a way around that? What, how did you, how'd you break that barrier? Um, so I didn't give up, you know. I came out of my mom's womb not giving up. I was born three months early. <laughs> I don't have no choice but to live, right? right? And so I stay true to who I am. Yeah. And I don't I don't I don't change course because of rooms that I'm in. Like I'm gonna stay true to who I am, who I am at all times. And you know, I I, I, I force them to go back and read some stuff. Like <laughs> I told, give you some homework. Right, right. Like I'm like, you're my dissertation t- chair, you're my committee. Like have you you're reading this from Peter Bordeaux, who had his own issues, right? And like when you look at researchers and yeah. all these other people who have determined what research are, but have you read what Venus Evans Winter says about black qualitative inquiry, uh, black feminism, and in, in qualitative and qualitative inquiry? And one of the one of my dissertation chair came back and said, "I, I owe you an apology because I I was so stuck in what." the colonial ways of yeah. how we do mm. research yeah. mm-hmm. that I couldn't see past that the work that you're doing is about to be groundbreaking. Exactly. And when you have something groundbreaking inside of you, there's going to be a resistance that comes with it. Mm-hmm. And this is what girls of color face because they there's something so great inside of them that people want to suppress that. And so right. I wasn't about, you're, you're not about to do what's been done to me in systems of education. And so I pushed back. And then at the end of my dissertation proposal, I asked them, I said, why did you all give me such a hard time about doing this research? And one of them was like, well, it, we, I never seen it done this way before. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that's quite an admission. That a white man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. White woman. Right. Oh, okay. Even, yeah. Even more so. <laughs> even more so. Right. Yeah. And then the other white woman said out of fear, and even the black woman said to me, who identifies, and she, she's okay with me sharing it, but the intersectionality, intersectionality of her being a black gay woman, right? Like, she was like, I was scared. Because society and whiteness has taught us that we have to put things in a box, and we're not allowed to do me-search, because me-search is not research. Mm. But it's more research than you'll ever know. Because I have to sit in... Everything that, that I experience, yeah, mm-hmm. I have to go back mm-hmm. really, really yeah. of all those experiences, and that that's not an easy thing to no. do, mm-hmm. right? And I got to come back and overcome it. But that's what why mentoring is so much important to me, because if I choose to 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 really walk this thing out and be true to who I am, right? Because I could be fake, but mm-hmm. that, that's not going to be me. But if I'm really gonna find my flair, yes. my flair is black girls, yes. Because my, that's my flair, because I'm a black girl and I resonate in that. But then even bigger than that, my my flair is making sure that girls of color understand, you know, as Beyonce's new song says, I'm that girl. You know, and they have the energy to bring that to the table. You see how I pulled that music from her new album in there? Because we are the renaissance. And we've been the renaissance, but we hold back and we pull back of not being who I am. So we've been having this, ar- not an argument, but this this little dialogue about Church Girl on the rena- renaissance album. And Omari, uh, a colleague of mine at work, is like, you can become a full member of the, the NASPA Bayhive Club if you like Church Girl. And I just can't get with the song. It, it's just not my cup of tea. But as I even pull back the layers of it and listen to it with a different lens and listen to what Beyonce's saying, she's giving girls who have been locked in by religion the freedom. opportunity for freedom. Yeah. 
Um, and do I agree with parts of the freedom? Yes. Do I agree with not some of the parts? There's some disagreement. You know, like for me, I'm not going to be dropping nothing like Thadia. I mean, I don't have that much to drop anyway, so you know, <laughs> I, can't, I can't drop that much. I, I, got, I, just, knee, I got knee issues. Yeah, I, I got, got knee issues. issues. I got knee issues. But who am I to box somebody in a yeah. circle to not allow them to have their free agency yeah. to be who they are and to come out of what they are? Mm-hmm. And that's what music does. When mm-hmm. you sit down and listen to music beyond the beat, when you listen, when you, when you, Listen to music beyond the beat of it, right? You understand what these words are saying. Music has the alter, has the ability to alter your mood. Yeah. Like yes. I remember when we were in college, like if we were gonna go turn up for the night and we knew we wanted to fight with somebody, we listen to DMX. Y'all gonna make me lose my mind up in cheer, right? Yeah. And so taking those li- lyrics, you can still listen to B- uh, you can still listen to DM- DMX and lose your mind, right? But lose your mind in I these do. books. <laughs> lose your mind in listening to this so that when you go into your job or you go into school that you you have a way to express that anger or that frustration, that sadness, that happiness through music. Yeah. And then putting that to a pen and putting that to a paper and being able to create this memo for yourself, that becomes your mentor text. And that's kind of how that works. I'm curious, what what sparked that um, connection to music for you? What do you can you pinpoint that? Was there a period in your life where you thought that's this is it? This is kind of where I had a, a very significant connection that was very meaningful. So I, I was trying to figure that out when I was doing my some of my dissertation um, proposal. But I can remember music as far as back of being two and three. And, like, mm-hmm. my cousins would always tell me, like, I was always a music head. Like, mm-hmm. I was always dancing, always singing. My Instagram page is full of me just being in Facebook, just, you know, dancing, singing or whatever. But, you know, I found that whenever my grandma was making us package, she was always listening to music. Mm-hmm. And so I resonated with that. And I, I, I feel like that became my escape sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. And I escape in music every day like there's not a day that goes by that I'm not I I haven't poured an hour into just listening to music if not there's some days where I just listen to music all day but I think you know it when it really connected with me was because initially I wasn't doing um I knew that I was going to do autoethnography but um journaling was always a part of it and mentors were always a part of it but then I think about two years ago it really connected that music is my mentor Mm -hmm. music doesn't a mentor doesn't have to be Somebody that you know. Yeah. 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 And so that's when I really feel like it, like when I feel the full total connection of it was about two years ago and I started feeling a push out on a college campus working here. Mm -hmm. um, uh, And I started being, feeling the push out, like that they couldn't hold my talent and my gift. Mm -hmm. And so the only thing that they, they could do was to push out. And the sad thing is the push out didn't just come from, uh, my white colleagues, it came from my colleagues of color too. I know that hurts even more. And that's the yeah. piece that, yeah. and this is what women and girl, women and well, let's go there. Black girls, women of color yeah. and girls mm-hmm. of color face is um, sometimes of that internal, that intercultural racial battle fatigue. Dr. Mm-hmm. William yeah. Smith has coined this term called racial battle fatigue. And it's the trauma you've experienced from racism and the battle fatigue that you experience from that. If you ever get a chance, look up his work. It's, it's super amazing. But that inner, uh, that intercultural, uh, 
race, uh, uh, and, and not racism, but biases and prejudice we have within our own communities, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think play a, a, a critical role in to push out for girls of color and women of color. Uh, excuse women of color, girls of color, and black girls and black women. And you know, seeing that, I realized that my story really had to be. To- it has to be told because if we don't tell it, then how many? How many? Like, think about yourselves. How many times have you experienced some push out on your jobs or in yeah. society and you've acquiesced to silence? Because that's the first place I go to when it, when it gets real. If I'm quiet, something's pr- not all the time. Yeah. But if I'm extremely quiet and I got a solemn look on my face, mm-hmm. that means something probably is wrong. Right. And so you see girls of color and black girls in schools when they get in trouble, they acquiesce to silence. They're not saying anything. They're not mm-hmm. saying anything to their friends. They're not saying anything to principals. If you all were to come into schools and try to do your regular mentoring program with them, they're not trying to hear what you have mm-hmm. to say because the easiest thing when push out happens, and Mon- um, Monica Morris talks about this, Dr. Morris talks about this a lot about push out for black girls, right? And what that looks like. And, you know, based on you're pushed out because of your clothes, your body type, how you, what, what people's perception of you and, Black women and black girls, I believe, have always had to, we've always had to prove something to somebody. We're proving stuff to ourselves, which is already hard enough that we, we're worthy of being there. Like, even coming here today, I'm talking to myself, I was like, well, why'd they pick me to do a podcast? Like, what makes me worthy of having that? And then, you know, me having to go back through a journal and say, no, you are worthy of this. You've had this le- these lived experiences to be able to have com- conversation. And this is just one aspect of your stage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Dr. Shirley, Shirley Chisholm said, if you don't have a seat at the table, a chair at the table, pull up one. Bring, and yeah. I don't even bring in, really even bringing up chairs. I'm bringing the whole table with me. <laughs> like, I want my own table. I want yeah. my own table. Yeah. And I want my own table to bring other people to the table. Yeah. And that's, you know, this is the cool thing about this podcast because you're bringing Right. Different people to the table mm-hmm. that maybe their voices have been suppressed or not been heard, but giving that opportunity for it to get out there. Yeah. That makes sense? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think there's just so much that you said that is rooted in um, just cultural trauma that has happened to us since the beginning. Mm-hmm. As far as like starting with music, music got us through. You know? Oh yeah, yeah. It served a, a variety of functions <laughs> from entertainment to telling you where the slave roots right. were out to, you know, just stress relief. Right. You know. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, I just there have been so many um, different stories that I've had, I've heard, uh, and I have my own stories of how I've just been able to escape through the music. Because sometimes your reality is just so terrible or you just feel like you can't escape, especially as a girl, when you have no options, you know, like utilizing music in order to um, to to live another day. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. And then the whole um, just interracial tension that goes on between black people. You got the light skins and the dark skins. Oh, yeah. It's just so much. Yeah, I mean that, and and I think you know that colorism is a third rail right. that people mm-hmm. really don't want to talk about, yeah. and and every culture has it. Mm-hmm. You know, light skin is better, dark skin. You know, as a light skinned black woman, I have like dealt with that. You know, being in that in between spot, having like a proximity to whiteness that that I don't value, but is put upon me. 
and then working in the black community and having to go through this pretty much hazing ritual Mm -hmm. about, is she real, you know? And, you know, and I want to stand up and yell, that's African-American proverb, don't let the light skin fool you, (laughs) right? (laughs) Right? But, you know, but I recognize that, you know, the advantage I have with the lighter skin, that there is some trust I have to earn. Um, But why? That's the thing. I don't feel like you're black. The experience Mm -hmm. is... Well, you know, I, and it takes me back to Queen. I, if anybody mm-hmm. hasn't got a chance to watch Queen, I just, I always, I, I don't like watching it, but I watch it sometimes just to remind myself, like, what we've really been through. But when I think about Queen, Queen honestly thought those folks were going to accept her because she was half white, right? And, and and I'll never forget when she went to the grave and the mom came out and when she was like, so you going to accept me now? And she's like, no, you still have, you still have black. You still got... And, and of course, she uses a different word. You still got that blood in you. So you're still not accepted. So we we assimilate to what the world wants, but the world doesn't want us. Yeah. And so how do we find ourselves in position to where we don't assimilate to whether the Willie Lynch letter is real or not? It, the method of it, when you, when, you, when you unpack it of, I'll separate them, I'll give this light-skinned girl some knowledge, I'll give mm-hmm. this this dark-skinned girl an opportunity to work in an office. I'll teach some of them to read. I'll teach some of them to write. I won't teach this person, this person, and I'll separate them by, you know, I'll have the lighter-skinned folks in the in the house with me, and that's going to make them feel like they're better. But at the end of the day, you're both still slaves. Right. You're still right. both bound to something. And, and, and you know, and I, I think that consciousness has, I think, has always been there, you know, Um Proximity to whiteness is not all what it's cracked up to be. I mean, it's a whole different set. I mean, like, you know, you use music. Movies are like that for me. And I remember being in middle school when Planet of the Apes came out, the the original one with Charleston Heston. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother took me to the drive-in, and I knew something was up because she didn't fall asleep. Usually when we went to the <laughs> drive-in, she was knocked out, and we were, like, watching the movie. But she stayed up with me and she just like looked at me, looked at the movie, looked at me. And at the end of the movie, she said to me, I'll never forget it. She said, you see those primates that the lighter skin one, the orangutan was hanging out with the scientists in the movie. That gorilla is the smartest one there. So don't get it twisted. Like, like that colorism was burnt out of me. Like, don't get it twisted just because you're hanging out and they're, like, accepting you. That gorilla is the smartest one scientifically, and they portrayed him as the most brutal and most violent. So don't get it twisted. So I was raised with the mother like that. Okay, okay, I get it, I get it, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? Because my father was light enough to pass. We used to say he could pass for 15 minutes, right? Because if you really looked at him, he kind of went... Yeah, you know, like he's black, you know, and I remember reading and asking him, like, in middle school, like, what are we? Are we octoroons? Are we, you know, mulattoes? Because I was reading Steinbeck at the time, like in sixth grade. Um, And he looked at me. He said, you know what? We're niggas. That's what we are. And I was like, okay, now you straighten that out. I'm clean. You know, I'm clear on that. Right. So. Our family was raised with the one-drop rule. So I've never felt that kind of conflict about that and always been kind of surprised when I get those projections 
on me mm -hmm. that I should value my light skin more than I do because it's an advantage, nothing more than that. And it's an advantage that I don't really value that much. And I think it's an advantage some in, in certain instances, but like you said, like what your dad said, we still got part in you, you yeah. know, you still this what they value. But I want to circle something around back that you said about the uh, the gorilla. That's how black women are, black girls and women are viewed mm -hmm. in so many aspects that we've got to tame this, mm -hmm. this, this beast, this right? Thing, right? This thing, we've got to, we've got to tame her. You know, I, I remember somebody at work telling me, you know, your nail polish is just so bright. And it was another black woman, but you just keep on wearing your black, you keep on wearing your bright colors on your nails and your clothes as if. She was the upper echelon of what yeah. black yeah. women, but you were ashy. Like, I didn't yeah. add that in there, you know, that, and that, that's, that's petty. You don't have to add no, that in. No, here's some lotion. You know, here's some lotion. <laughs> While you're telling me to be up for some upper echelon yeah. and that, because you hold this position of power, but they still treat you the same. Yeah. They're not yeah. treating you like any you, different. they're not treating you any different. And so it, it's interesting, several months after that, she, she left the institution because she realized like, no, they're, they're, you're still the same as them. And you ashy. Like, so like. <laughs> but you know, you know how I know that that's true, like empirically? It's like, and it's always bugged me when you look at television shows and movies and they put together black families and the skin tones are off. Like, yeah. no, that, it doesn't work that way. Right. right. You, I mean, but it's like the casting director sees, okay, black is, they don't see the gradations like we do. Yeah. yeah. Right. They just see black. Right. Yeah. And and then and, and in part of that that animal kingdom that they built about black black women or black girls, they've sent other black women and black yeah. girls to try to tame to reinforce to reinforce yeah. what whiteness says and like we're not here to be in reinforced. Like I'm going to stand boldly in who I am. I'm loud, I'm funny, I'm caring. I'm loving. I'm not gonna change that. But when I also say something that's firm, it doesn't mean that I'm angry. It doesn't mean that I'm unruly and it doesn't mean that I need to be tamed. And the problem with society is because they've labeled us, especially black women and black girls, that we're these unruly animals that need this taming. They spend more time in taming us than getting to understanding us and really dealing with the, the issue, the actual issue. the actual issue of what's the man who used to chase the little crocodiles and end up dying from it, whatever. That That's the real issue because he's out there killing and try to make things extinct. Mm. The and poacher. The poachers. Yeah. You have poachers out there that are really doing the, the large damage and making things extinct, and you're not worried about them. But you're worried about this black girl who's trying to come into who she is, and she's told, no, she can't come into who she is. But Sally um, or Becky can be acting just as big of a fool, if not bigger, and be like, you know what? They're just going through a phase. They're having a bad day. They're yeah. having a bad day. Yeah. You know, you know, and how that taming kind of extends into, I think, in education and I think into the adult work world is the concept of supervision, mm -hmm. that we're always supervised, right? I've done this informal research over the last few years why I've asked women of color who either work in white organizations or work with white organizations I've asked them, what do white women bring to the table other than supervising you and giving you positive affirmation? What do they bring? And I've gotten these blank looks like, 
yeah, what do they bring, right? But it's this feeling that we need supervision over everything. I mean, I remember working in white organizations and having the same feeling in my body that I felt like when I went into a department store, like security mm-hmm. was on me. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's a, and, and there's a difference between feeling seen and being surveilled, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? And I think it also shows up in, in like those Twitter videos of the Karens that feel completely <laughs> authorized mm-hmm anywhere to just correct a person of color they want to do yeah i mean the the latest one that's just fascinating where this black guy is going into his house she stops the car she gets out and she asks him does he live here and she he says yes and then she asks for the lease (laughs) i need to see the lease now she and i'm just like are you where did you come from like how no but it's just fascinating how did you get that sense of entitlement entitlement that you feel completely authorized to stop your car ask a strange person for that and expect a response and i think it's tied to this societal setup that they're like overseers in, in different in different degrees you know, and, 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 I, and I feel like I've got to make a disclaimer that I do have healthy relationships with white women. It's rare. i got to work real hard. And it's real. And I've asked them, like, how come you don't have that creepy Miss Ann vibe? I mean, like. Or can you talk to your friends? Or can you talk <laughs> to your <laughs> friends? And, have it. and your sister yeah. and your mama. Yeah. yeah. You know, because there's some that don't have that. Right. That are. Really good people. Good mm-hmm. people, companions. Mm-hmm. They're doing their work. They're not watching you work, thinking that that's their work. Right. Because mm-hmm. I really think that they think that's their work, the supervision, the taming part of it. The su- mm-hmm. let me, you know, let me let me give you the rules of how to live like a human being. But there, there's a group that, and, I, and that's who I'm interested in talking to. Like, how'd you get that? Yeah. How you? Because mm-hmm. we need more of that. We need more of that. How'd you get that, right? Well, and I, it, it draws me back as I'm thinking about one of the journals that I wrote about an experience is I was, I was leading a, a, de, a department of some different centers on a college campus, and I had to interview for the position, but the white woman with less experience, one, was just appointed her position as, mm-hmm. uh, as my backup, and... Um, has now ascended to a top position and has not had to didn't have to interview for any of those right but backing up to the taming i remember she came into a meeting and i you know for me because i'm a big picture person i have to spend more time on details that 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 that's that's i don't want to call it a weakness weak area because i don't believe so much in weaknesses but i i believe in growth areas right and so there's a growth area for me is to pay attention to the smaller details like i'm not the one like i took my niece to get those little croc things you put in a shoe and the charms the the charms and there was this big bin and she was like i need to find a a a a, a frog and (laughs) i I looked for about two minutes i (laughs) I do not have time to dig through that right like that that's too much detail for me to try to to navigate through and so i I started to put some structure around um, like how we did processes within the office so that one, because I'm signing so many different things and like I look good in orange and I look good in stripes, but I don't look good with orange, (laughs) orange numbers. Yeah. With numbers mm-hmm. and orange with stripes, I ain't going to jail for nobody. Yeah, like, me. I've been there, done. Like, yeah. been, like yeah. my, my whole family's been there. Like, I, ain't, I'm not trying to do that, yeah. right? And so, I always wanted to be on top of that. So, because I brought some structure to the environment, 
she resisted it. And what she did was is she built a coup up against me, right? And got all the other people, including the people of color, like, Asia's this mean person. She's making us do all of these things, right? And so I eventually get pushed out, right? She ascends to that position and a position higher and a position higher than that. And now most of those people are gone. And not seeing what this white woman did, right? That she did a push out here so that she could get Mm -hmm. here. But then I'm left with the traumatic experience of that, right? Mm -hmm. And so how how do I navigate through that with music? I'm turning to outcast, right? I'm turning I'm turning to 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 to, uh, to that DMX. Well, I might <laughs> even went to Tupac, I hit him up. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little bit rougher, right? Like I went there because like I'm like, where do I go to to yeah. navigate this, right? right? And now the picture is at that place that I was just this angry employee that mistreated students, da 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 da. When none of it's simply true, but because they had this one white woman come and tell this story, mm-hmm. it's created for me triggers. So when I get into spaces with certain white women and I can see like their persona right off the top, whether it's real or not, because now that this traumatic experience has happened to me, I've kind of boxed them up. And not all white folks are bad. Like, I mean, you just said not all mm-hmm. of them are bad. Now, there's a good percentage. I mean, I, you know, they say there's an 80-20 rule. I wonder if that's really true in mm-hmm. relationships with yeah. white women. But it is a struggle to navigate through with white women because there's this automatic trust that happens. And how many white women are teaching our girls of color in the classroom? Mm-hmm. So I, I was trying to bring it around to that. Mm-hmm. These, these people are teaching our girls in the classroom. And how are they making our girls feel in and out the classroom? Because what happens in the classroom, comes outside the classroom, it goes into the hallways, and then it eventually goes to the streets. And then where do we find some of those little black girls? We find them in lockup. We find in juvenile detention centers. When you go into juvenile detention centers or prisons, if you've ever gotten a chance to go do work with with that, that beautiful community that are in there sometimes because they've just made a mistake or wrongfully accused of something or had to do survival things to, to, to make it in this world because they were pushed out somewhere else, yeah, right? Right. You will hear their experience of push out, a good percentage of them talking about this push out. Dr. Bettina Love, who's a researcher Mm -hmm. out of uh, Georgia, um, does she has a a book called Little Sisters Speak. And it's just amazing. And it talks about how she went into the school, um, this community center, excuse me, and did this work with um, black girls in particular and pulled down music lyrics and connected her life story to their life story. And like all her perceptions of them, because, you know, she had to said she had to check her biases because she identifies as a, a gay black woman. And, you know, she and most of the little girls were either from the black community that have pushed I mean, then being totally honest, the black church has really pushed a lot of folks from the LGBTQ plus mm-hmm. community out. Mm-hmm. Right. And so because it's rooted in, you know, I, I believe what this one thing says, but I haven't looked at the totality of that, the context of that whole message. Right. And so she talks about her own biases of not wanting to mentor those black girls because she was like, they're going to treat me like everybody else did in the mm-hmm. church. like and push me out because of this, my lifestyle. And then she talks about how she removes her biases away. Right. Mm-hmm. And how this beautiful mentorship came through them listening to music together and them identifying this work together. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that when I look at being able to volunteer with fancy, that's some of what's going on. Like I, I, I find myself looking at the girls and I'm like, Oh, she likes, this is her song. This, If I were to pick a song for her, this, I, I bet she, she could connect to this. And getting them to see that all of them are a piece of music. Mm-hmm. All of us have a song. 
All of us have a lyric. All of us have a chorus. And how our our lived experiences and life experiences and traumatic experiences, good and bad, good experiences are all part of our story. And how do we help tell them their story too? That that's what this research that that's what my particular research is about, right? And so it, it's trying to to find that influence and be able to create programming around that and. Can we put this kind of type of curriculum in schools for black girls? But then what kind of what kind of practices do we put in place for black women on jobs or women of color on jobs? Are there are there sister circles at at, at institutions of education? You know, are there sister speaks, you know, mm-hmm. are there more sister to sister luncheons and not where it's performative? Because some of this work that we're doing on these college campuses or that I've done, I can honestly now look back and was like, oh, that was totally performative. Because there's no change. Because if yeah. it if it's performative, it fades away. Mm-hmm. If it's yeah. change, it mm-hmm. keeps going forward, right? Right. And so I think those are the things that we have to look at when we're really looking at what I call critical incidents. These are the incidents of push out, racism, and then the critical support comes. What are your mentors telling you? How do they develop you? How do they mm-hmm. affirm you? How did you move from rejection to acceptance? Because that's another thing our, our girls of color are dealing with. That word rejection is deep. And we've all experienced that at some le- level, whether that didn't get a job uh, or we didn't get an opportunity. Didn't make the team. Didn't make the team. And then the old cliche saying, oh, because you were too good to be a part of them. That's not, we need to stop telling people that. No, maybe you just weren't good enough to be on the dance team. You can't dance. Like, and I think we tell these kids, the, we tell people lies, right? Like we have to be able to fulfill people's buckets with the, the truth and reality of who they are and where yeah. they're going. Like, I'm not going to like tell you like you're a sucky dancer. I, I mean, I'm not going to do that, but I'll be like, hey, yo, the step team's not for you. Or the dance team's not for you, but here's how you could help in this capacity and giving them another opportunity to lead in a different way. And then spending more time with them if they, it's something they really want to do, if they're willing to put the work in, let allow them to mm-hmm. put the work in mm-hmm. and say, okay, here's what you can do. Maybe you can't do this performance, but keep at it and we'll get you in the next one. Mm-hmm. There's ways to go around that. And I think that's what music mentorship and memos do. You know, I can I can take what's going on in my day and say, hey, this is what happened. Let me write it down. Let me connect it to. It may be Tupac today, but it might be Amazing Grace. Mm-hmm. It might be I never could have made it. You know, mm-hmm. it might be, you know, a country song. You know, I, I don't know. It could be, it's, it's yeah. whatever going through my thought process that day and that I need to hear. And I think that the universe will give you what you need to hear, even in music. Yeah, definitely. And, and it kind of, are you like your work connecting folks to their inner voice? Can yeah. Because okay. I didn't have an inner voice, you know, yeah. it was suppressed. Yeah. yeah. And I think you just it, it, music just gives you the words that you didn't know that you needed. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. then especially for our girls that are just navigating so many different environments and people and experiences, allowing them to have that outlet because it's a coping mechanism. Yeah. You know, when we're talking about how to deal with stress and how to um, just make it through. You know, so it's one of the things that assist you in doing that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's very important. Right. Like, very important. And what if all of us little, what if all of our us went back to our little selves, little Asia that couldn't say that this, grandma, this is wrong that you have me out here doing this. Yeah. Like this is wrong. That little inner girl being able to finally say this was wrong and this should not have happened to me creates an adult Asia who's healed that understands Mm -hmm. that I don't have to go through traumatic experiences and I have the voice 
to be able to say that. And you can't suppress my voice. You know, yeah. you can't break my soul, right? Mm-hmm. You can't because my, my soul is not rooted in you. My soul is rooted in me. You yeah. know, and some of that stuff, you know, I've done some inner work. Some of that stuff, I just give it back to them. Yeah. Like, yeah, this ain't mine. This is yours. Yeah. You know, um, you know what we put on our kids. And the generational curses that we've put on kids. I think folks of color, mm-hmm. we've carried on traditions down and down and down. Like, I remember, I'm not going to lie, when I get some kids, I can't wait to whoop them and say, I'm doing this because I love you. <laughs> yeah. I, I really thought that's what parenting was. Like, yeah. you getting whooped, I thought that was love. Like, because that's, yeah. that's when I... You know, that's when I felt like I got attention. Oh, like did. I would do things to get wrong. I would do something wrong to get that attention. And and, and that is just like such a stinking way of thinking, right? Mm-hmm. It like hurts that, me more than it hurts, hurts you. you. And I remember being a kid going, nah. Nah, I got wells. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. And no, I remember. No, no, I, don't, I don't think that's true, but it's not safe to say that out loud right now. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. right. And, and then also thinking about it, like the things that I heard my, my, my family to say, like, Therapy, like I also think this is a part of music mentorship and memos is is going to talk to therapy. Like everything I heard around therapy was that's for crazy people. Oh, mine was like my mother. I remember my mother. My mother saying therapy is for people that don't have friends and family. That part. Yeah. And you could just pray, and then don't get church involved. You just oh, need man. to pray. You, yeah. you need to just pray about it and go forth, right? Yeah. But here's yeah. here's the deal on that. We suppress all of that stuff. And then yeah. I was scared because I always heard, like, if you go to that school and talk to that counselor, they're going to take you out of here and you're going to live with some white folks that don't like you and they're going to mistreat you and you only going to get one peanut butter jelly sandwich a day. The whole story. <laughs> but, but guess what? I was only getting one peanut butter jelly Anyways. sandwiches there. Like, sometimes I ate. The only time I ate was at school lunch. So I'm thinking to myself, it can't get no worse than right, this, right? right? Yeah. But how do we take all of these lived experiences and find our inner voice? Yeah. And is it our inner voice or is it just our voice? Yeah, and let it out, right? Because, you know, in a black household, what happened in this house stays, stays in, in this house. house. Okay. I was so, taught not to cry because if yes. you cry, you're a punk. Yes. So I, I, I grew up holding tears back. And, and now I'm just like, okay, so I have to tell my family and friends, like, I'm crying a thug tear. Like, <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still an OG, right? Like, don't take just, my... Just glistening. Yeah, just glistening. This, just is a, glistening. this is one for the homies. I'm, a, I'm still a whole thug, right? right? But it's okay to cry. It's okay to feel. Because I think that's another thing girls are not taught. Right. Girls of color especially. We're taught not to feel that we're just supposed to take it Mm -hmm. and pull Mm -hmm. our big girl pants up and keep it moving. I don't know how many times I've been told that even on employer. I remember when the push out started happening at me at the last job and I went to this, this woman, the ashy woman. Um, (laughs) I guess I'm not going to let that go. (laughs) (laughs) Next time I see you, I'm going to give you some trial size lotion. (laughs) Keeping your car. Right. Um, And she told me, you know what? This is what black women face. You just need to pull up your big girl draws and keep moving. Because yeah, nobody listens. Nobody Even if listens. You do say something, you know. Nobody listens. Nobody listens. But we got to change culture. We do. Yeah. And we change culture by not. We don't. Yes. We you change culture by not acquiescing to silence. You use your voice in the capacity to create the change that you can create. And you know when to use it and when to pull back. And right. that's one of the biggest things I've, I'm having to learn. You know, I'm our student body president um, at Claremont Graduate University, and um, there's just some interesting factors going on. I'm on, I'm on a board. I'm the only. I'm the only 
person that identifies as a woman and there's some cultural differences i have two nigerian men who sit in the position and they've basically told me like you don't have a voice and i'm like i'm the president <laughs> you know like <laughs> i got the voice right but i was talking through my mentor mom with it about this morning i'm like doing this and doing that and she's like asia pull your ego out of it you don't have anything to prove to them you sit in the meetings and be quiet she's the problem that you have is you're still trying to prove you're worthy of sitting in the position. You ran for the position. You were elected in the position. Be the position. Mm -hmm. I'm 45 and I'm still learning it. And we're yeah. all still learning it, right? But what happens if I just find my voice and sometimes my voice is in the silence? Mm -hmm. And sometimes we don't realize that. Yeah. And we have to teach our, we have to teach girls like this. There is a time to, to, to let it all out. There is. But there's also a time to let people do the talking to show you who they are. Yeah, definitely. You know, and, and that's the difference between being responsive and reactive, right? Yeah. To choose silence rather than being silenced. Right. Choosing yeah. silence is a choice, and it's an act of authority, and it could be perceived as an act of power. It is an act of power. It is. Yeah. I, I use it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I know. I because know. I notice the people in the community that speak the loudest. Don't even do nothing. Right. Yeah. And I know, yeah. are we getting close to probably time? Mm -hmm. So there, before we close out, I want to do an activity with you all just to show you how music becomes your mentor. So I want you to think about your favorite song right now. It's it can be many. It can be whatever I, you listen I, to I, today. I listen to podcasts. I don't, they, they know okay. I don't listen to a lot of music. Okay, that's fine. Take your favorite podcast. Okay. And I want you to take, I want you to take five words, each of you, out of your favorite podcast or, or your song, or and song. it could be a song of the day. It doesn't have to necessarily be. It could be your favorite song. Like this morning, my my favorite song was "Not Me" by by LMA. Like like, just not me. So I just want you to take five words, and and, and I want you to spit that to me real quick. Give me okay. those five words. Th this is gonna be really mm. maybe too vulnerable. This is a song that came to my head. Okay. Um, Brandy, you're a fine girl. So your words are "You're a fine girl," or you got some words in the song. I don't know. Those are the first five words of the song. Okay. Randy, you're a fine girl. That's what you told me to do. I followed it. <laughs> you did. You did. I wasn't. I wasn't clearing my instructions. So okay. that's fine. Okay. I got you. I, I'll, I'll make it work. All right. Five words. Five words. Okay. I only have two. Okay. That's fine. Okay. But it's in Spanish. Okay. That's fine. So it's um this. It's a pretty famous song. So if you're Spanish speaking, you would know. It. It's called Amor Eterno, and it translates to eternal love. Okay. Eternal love. Okay. Um. The God of the Hills and the Valleys. I don't know if that's five or not, but that's one of my favorite songs by Torin Wells. And then I'm going to go with, let me see what I want to go with today. I was listening to that. I'm going to go with, there's a promise over your life. So if we take music and take your words from what you created, because we just created this right now. I've written a memo. For those of you who can't see, I've written a memo. Now I'm going to show you how the memo becomes the music and then becomes your mentor. So, Brandy, you have to sometimes understand that you're truly a really fine girl, that there's an internal love that's within you that you can never let go of. The God of the hills and the valleys will always bring you the, through because there's a promise for your life. Little brown girl, little black girl, there's a promise over your life. And that's how music becomes your memo, but then becomes your mentor. What we listen to becomes part of us. Mm -hmm. So if I were to walk away from anything out of all the funny things I said, even with the ashiness, <laughs> is that there's a promise for each and every girl of color and what they face. So don't stop moving. Keep going forward. Well, with that said. Yep. Drop uh, the mic. Yeah, drop the mic. Do they still Asia drop Jones. Mic? 
<laughs> we can't. Add, well, well, this one is kind of hooked oh, okay. up to the table, but <laughs> in theory, I'm on stage dropping the mic. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you, and we are just um, so grateful that you're a part of our community. Thank you for having me. I appreciate y'all. So great. This podcast is made possible by the California Commission on the Status of Women and Girls. Additional sponsors include San Diego County Employees Charitable Organization. You can access all episodes and connect with us via email at allaboutgirlsofcolor.com.